Easter. Happy Resurrection Church. He is risen. He is risen. Risen indeed. My name's John. I'm one of the pastors here this morning. I want to dialogue about that amazing grace. So why don't you stand to your feet as we get ready to read and honor God's word together in the room, online. What's up to the crew in Guyana? Pumped to have you joining us. We are going to find ourselves in what has become the most popular story, parable from the risen Lord Jesus. This is the parable of the prodigal son. Now there are two sons in this story. The uniqueness of this story is that while it is the most popular, it also continues to be the most poorly understood or misunderstood. And I am hoping that God by his grace would illuminate his heart to us through this story, this parable, this earth story with a heavenly meaning. We're gonna pick up in verse 11, and if you are ready, say, let's do this. I'm a talkback preacher, so the more you yell at me, the more happy I get, and the shorter I preach, and the quicker we go home. So everybody wins. Verse 11, Jesus, I didn't want you to get that excited about that, okay? I just hope you'd be like, no, preach forever, John. We love it. Anyways, Jesus continued, there was a man who had how many sons? All right, keep your finger there because that's going to be important. Two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. We'll get into what this means in the ancient world, original context, because it's important. So the father divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Just like that. One verse, isn't that how life works? I'm on top of the world. One verse later, you're like, what happened? Anybody relate to that one? After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his field to feed the pigs. Now in our cultural context, you're like, sweet, free bacon, right? But in the ancient world, to a Jewish audience, they would have known this is the lowest of the low. Not only is his son playing in the mud with animals, but he's working with unkosher animals, forbidden by God. This is absolute rock bottom. He longed, verse 16, to fill his stomach with the pods that the pig were eating. Somebody say, gross. But no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. This is crazy. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to set out. I'm going to go back to my father. I'm going to say to him, and he practices his speech. Anybody ever been there? You're practicing your apology speech on the drive to the meeting before the phone call. He says, all right, here's what I'm going to do. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That sounds good. So he got up and went off to his father. Check this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said, father, he launches into his speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven, against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let's have a feast and celebrate for this son of mine was what? Dead. And he's alive again. You know what that's called? Resurrection. He was lost and he's found. 
So they began to celebrate. I'm praying we look at a familiar story in an unfamiliar way because this story is all about resurrection. Let's pray. Jesus, help. Speak to our hearts. Help us to hear your voice. Amen. Turn to your neighbor, give him a high five. You can find your seat in the room online. If you're there with your dog or your cat, give him a high five. If you're there with your cat, pray for it. That it'll become a dog. I'm just playing, I'm just playing, I'm just playing, I'm just playing. By the way, I'm wearing a suit today. Just wanted to draw attention to that because tw- twice a year, you'll get John dressed up. Twice a year. Easter and Christmas, so enjoy it while it lasts. Take a picture, it lasts longer. Um, I have been told this many a time, but kids grow up so fast. Parents, can I get an amen? Kids grow up so fast. Many of you know I'm from a Jewish background. My wife, Nancy, is from a Puerto Rican background. Any Boricuas out there one time for the Boricuas in the house? This means that we got two little Jew-Rican babies that are are running around here at Greenhouse. We got a six-year-old named Liam, a three-year-old named Lucia, and... And kids just grow up so fast. In fact, it was only a few weeks ago, I showed up to my son's school to pick him up from school, and his teacher said, oh, hey, Mr. Lash, Liam had a great day. He actually asked one of my students to marry him. (laughs) Six, mind you, he's six. Okay, she said, I I told him he might want to wait a little bit for that, but it it was very sweet, and I just want to let you know. I'm like, thank you so much, and this is all within earshot of my son. And so we start walking to the car. I'm like, hey, bud, how was your day? He kind of gives me that look like, dad doesn't seem mad, but I don't think I was supposed to do that. And I was like, hey, did you, uh, did you ask somebody to marry you today, Liam? And his little wheels are turning and he's like, I think he knows. And he said, yeah. I was like, oh, well, what was her name? He said, Jada. I was like, okay. And then he goes into sales mode. He says, dad, dad, dad. She was six, okay? She's my, she's my age. She's a girl my age. And I was like, okay. He said, dad, dad. And she's pretty. <laughs> Kid you not. I was like, son, that's good. Those are good parameters that you've set there. The problem is you are six. He's like, dad, but it's fine because I also asked Gabby to marry me <laughs> in case Jada says no. I was like... Now that is no longer good. I know that, you know, I'm from a Jewish background and the ancients of our people did things a different way, but we do not do, uh, so one wife is what you will have, my precious son. Um, and let's, let's give it a few years before you propose again. And he did not answer me. And I was like, son, let's wait on the proposals for a few years. And he's like, fine. <laughs> Wild. And I just, hey, that is, to- if you've heard any stories about Liam, you're like, that eh, sounds about right. But B, I'm like, where did he get this from? Like, I just need you to know, we're good parents. Like, we do not have teach your kids to propose to their peers, like tutorial. That's not part of our discipleship, at least right now for a six-year-old, right? Like, where did this come from? Well, it came from our humanity. We are literally hardwired for relationships. No one has to teach us that we want to be in the company of another person that we like and think is pretty or whatever for the rest of our lives. We are hardwired for relationships, that desire, it's hardwired in. Relationships are the key to everything. Harvard University does a study, study, it's called the happy 
the good life. It's, it's the longest standing longitudinal happiness study in, in modern history. They've spanned all of these generations and decades and they basically, Harvard University has leaned in to figure out what is it that actually gives people the good life? What is it that actually helps people thrive, that makes people happy? You know what they found? It's not money. It's not status, it's not success. The key to happiness, according to the empirical research of Harvard study, you can look it up, is guess what? Relationships, long-standing, life-giving, meaningful relationships. The key to everything is relationships. This is true in business, is it not? This is true interpersonally, and this is especially true with God. Friend, I need you to know something. In the room online in Guyana, you were made for relationship. We know this. This is probably nothing new. Here's the unique thing I want to layer into this conversation. You were made for relationship, and our relationships thrive on grace. Everybody say grace. Our relationships thrive on grace. Now, we've often, in our cultural context and modern world, misconstrued grace to be a strictly religious word, but grace is actually a relational word. Here's what I mean. Let me give us an operating definition. Many of you have heard the terms mercy and grace, and they're often used interchangeably, but they are uniquely nuanced. Mercy is not getting the bad things that you deserve. I know all of you drive like angels here in South Florida, but let's say you have a friend and they got a little bit of a heavy foot and they're going and then whoop, whoop, they see the lights. Mercy would be you get pulled over and you know you're guilty. And the cop says, hey, you know what? You seem like a great person. I'm gonna let you off the hook. Happy Easter. You're like, wouldn't that be nice? That would be mercy not getting the bad that you deserve. Grace, however, is like mercy on steroids. Grace is getting the good you don't deserve. In that same analogy, you get pulled over, you know you're guilty, whoop, whoop. Hey, you know what? We're not gonna give you a ticket. And then he comes back, he's like, actually, I changed my mind. You're like, I knew it, it's too good to be true. He said, I have this $100 gift card. I just figured, why don't you do something nice for your family? Take them out for an awesome day. Have a great day. I'm a civil servant here to serve. God bless you. Some of you are like, what world do you live in? Exactly, that's what grace is supposed to do. What world is this? It's too good to be true. This is amazing grace. Y'all tracking with me? Mercy, not getting the bad. Grace is getting the good that you do not deserve. You and I were made for relationship and our relationships thrive in that space of, I can't believe it. Is this real? Can it be real? Amazing grace. But here's the problem. We were made for relationships. We thrive in relationships. The key to life is relationships. Relationships thrive in an environment of grace, and yet we live in a culture and modern moment of anti-grace. This is the problem. We live in a moment of, they're coming for you. We live in a moment of, you're gonna get what you deserve. We live in a moment of many, and, and don't get me wrong here, there is a need for accountability and holding people accountable and holding organizations accountable, but that is a very different thing. Dr. Tony Evans, one of my preaching heroes, said in our current cultural moment, a lot of what we are saying is justice is not actually justice according to God. It's actually what God calls vengeance. And it's all well and good as long as the them that you're talking about is the, man, they, they, they gotta get what's coming to them. It sounds great for them until it becomes you. And then it's not so fun. Because the problem is we are all victims in some ways and perpetrators in other ways. We need grace. 
Anti-grace, it it destroys, it eats us from the inside. It it annihilates relationships that we need and hold dear. And this problem is compounded because not only do we live in a modern cultural environment, an internet reality, come on somebody, of anti-grace, but we are actually surrounded by religions of anti-grace as well. In our religious environment, so much of religion, what it teaches is if you do good things, good things will come to you, kind of like karma. But if you do bad things, man, you better watch it. The problem is who does bad things? Everybody. All of us. And so we're, set, we're, we're, we're situated in this spot where culture is anti-grace, where religion is anti-grace. And if we are not careful, we assume that God is as well. But he's not. Enter this story and amazing grace. Here's what I want you to know this morning. If you're taking notes, you can jot this down here in the room online over in Guyana. Here's the core thought or premise that I wanna unpack for us. God wants to be in relationship with you. God wants to be in relationship with you. Had someone invite a friend this week. They're like, man, we'd love to have you come for Easter. And their friend piped in and said, oh man, if they showed up in your parking lot, the whole place would burn down. Like, that's a great friend right there. Wow. The reality is, though, a lot of us think in that way. Man, if God knew, he does. Well, if God saw, he knows. And yet he still wants to be in relationship with you. This pandemic has done something interesting in the human frame. There's this unique longing in our hearts for relationship with God in a modern individual. There's this unique longing in our hearts for some sort of authentic spirituality. If there is a God, agnosticism has become the leading thought process of the day. It's no longer atheism based off of the research. If there is a God, sure, I'd love to have a close connection, but we struggle because we're like, while I would like to have an authentic, life-giving, spiritual relationship with God, I don't want to become a mean religious jerk. Anybody? Great news, there's another way. It's called the way of grace. Grace makes life amazing. When grace is present, relationships with God, with even imperfect people can flourish and thrive. But when grace is absent, listen to me, friends, relationships wither every single time. You, I, we need amazing grace. Turn to your neighbor and say, you need grace so do I. We need grace. Let's dive in and see what the risen Lord has to teach us about amazing grace. Point number one is this. There are two ways to run from relationship. Everybody say two. Two, dos. Two ways to run from, in Creole, what is that? De, on de. That's it. Toi. That's all right. That's all I got. That's it. I'm done. Beni swali tenel. Amen. All right, Luke 15, let's jump back into the story. Actually, I had a little bit more. Let's jump back into the story, uh, starting in verse 11. Jesus continued, there was a man who had how many? Two. He had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there he squandered his wealth in wild living. Game over. The first way to run from relationship with God is the way of the younger brother. This is the first way to run from relationship with God. It's actually a a way that we run from relationship with people as well. Now, let me unpack this in the ancient context. This son comes to his father and says, the son comes to his father and says, yo, pops, give me my share of the inheritance. We think will, we think maybe they've got it set up in a trust. Maybe he's asking for an early release. In the ancient world, this would have been an offense punishable potentially by death. Here's what he's functionally saying. This word divide my inheritance in the original language, the word is bios. 
bios. It, it communicates that your, your, your heritage is tied up in your, your wealth, your property, your possessions. What he's essentially saying to his dad is typically what would happen in the ancient world is when the father passes, he divides his bios. As his bios, as his body goes down into the grave, back up with the Lord, he divides his bios among his family members. What the son is essentially saying to his father is, dad, I wish you were dead. You feel a little different now, right? This son isn't just money hungry, he's cruel. Now the ancient audience, Jesus is telling this story and it's a mixed crowd we're told a little bit before this story. Some in the crowd are religious people. They're Pharisees, they're Sadducees, they're experts in the law and the Torah. Some in this crowd are what are labeled as tax collectors and quote, sinners. They are not followers of God. They are not religious people. Jesus is speaking to both audiences in this one story. His audience would have heard this story and when the son comes up and says, Father, divide my inheritance, they would have been like, oh no, he didn't. He is dead. And then the father does it. Does it. He actually divides the inheritance. This would have began to mess with their frameworks. They would have realized, here the son is. You ever had someone say something to you and they knew what they were doing? They were just trying to emotionally destroy you with their words. That's what the son is doing here. In the law, it would have been punishable. And yet the father, in his kindness, says, okay. Divides up the inheritance, sends the son off on his way, and it's one verse blows it all. One verse and it's all gone. But the invincibility of his youth does not last long. Can I get an amen? You're 18 years old, you got life figured out, man. You're like, I got this, this is easy. Why is everybody struggling? He's like, just give me my inheritance, I'll get this figured out, dad. And then he's in the pig pen. And the son realizes the error of his ways, and what does he do? Well, often you hear it, he repents, but it's not actually what he does. Look back in the story in verse 17. When he came to his senses, this younger brother, he said, how many of my father's men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out, go back to my father and say, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Check this. Make me like one of your what? Hired What do hired servants do? They work. The son realizes, I have messed up in my own pride and arrogance and penchant for loose living. I have messed up my life. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to make it right. This is what we call religion. I'm going to clean my life. Man, I'm going to get this mud off me. I tell you what, I'm going to go. I'm industrious. I'm hardworking. I'm going to start at the bottom of the father's servants, but I'm going to work my way to the top. And I'm going to earn back what I have lost in foolishness. I will earn back with my might and ability. He decides he's going to be religious. What I need us to know is there are two ways to run from God. The younger brother ends up running from God and younger brothers, like I was, run from God through unrighteousness. This is what the Bible calls sin. Other verses say he spent this time with prostitutes. Loose living is this generic term for he's like, what are all the things God says not to do? Bet, 
That's what I'm gonna be after. And that's what he ends up doing. And he runs after, by the way, there is a very real reality that in God's word, he has laid out a path for our good and for our flourishing. And anything outside of those boundaries is what the Bible calls sin. These are things like lying, cheating, stealing, killing, adultery. These are things that do not lead to the flourishing that God has intended. And there is a very real reality of the consequences of those sins. Some of us in this room probably are like, yep, younger brother, that was my story. See, but there are two ways to run from relationship. This is the one we often hear preached. But the father has how many sons? Two, and they both miss it. Point number one is the way of the younger brother. Point number two is the way of the older brother. Let's read the rest of the story together. Verse 25, after this celebra- the father has declared, the son's come home, let's throw a party. Verse 25, meanwhile, this is like, shoo, 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 in the TV show, they flash to the other show. Meanwhile, shoo, 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 shoo. I don't know, that's a noise, it's just a noise. Shoo, shoo, shoo. It's a noise. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. And when he came near the house and heard music and dancing, he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. Now, Paul, I know the older brother gets all the shade, but you imagine you're there in this story and they're like, great news. You know your brother that told your dad, hurry up and die, and then your dad gave him everything he asked for and then he wasted it all in one Bible verse? Great news, he's back and dad gave him everything again. Right? I mean, I know y'all are spiritual. I would be pissed off in the King Jameth. The older brother, verse 28, became angry, you think, and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But look what he says. He says, Father, look. Yo, listen up. All these years, I've been slaving for you. I never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. Man, he comes home, he gets a Ferrari. You didn't even give me a Ford Focus. Nothing. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitute, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Can you relate to his frustration? You ever done a group project? (laughs) It just got real. (laughs) And there's always that one in the group, they don't do nothing. And then they get the A and they have all the things to say about it. You're like, "Mm, God bless you. You're the oldest in the family, dutiful, obedient, suffering for the rest, but you got the younger sibling and they get everything. They can do no wrong. Some of y'all are like, oh, come on, now you're preaching, pastor. Now you're preaching. If you're justice-oriented in any way, you're like, John, this isn't right. What's happening in this story, it's not just, but you gotta dig a little bit deeper. Jump back in in verse 28. The older brother becomes angry, refuses to go in. And when he gives his answer to the father, he says in verse 29, look, all these years I've been what? Slip. This is a story about relationship. One father, two sons. The older brother has been dutiful, obedient, religious. He's obeyed all the rules. And in his mind, I have been slaving away for you. See, what we see in the story is that both brothers were missing relationship. 
Both brothers massively misunderstood the heart and intentions of the father. While the younger brother missed out on relationship due to unrighteousness, the older brother misses out on the relationship due to self-righteousness. But neither one is thinking about the father. They're both thinking about themselves. The younger brother is thinking, man, father, I don't need you. Why don't you go ahead and die? Which, by the way, guess what he ends up doing in the story of Easter for our redemption. The older brother says, the younger brother says, father, I don't need you. The older brother says, father, I deserve this. I earned it. Neither one of them realize that they are actually fundamentally flawed in their identity. They're both missing it. One thinks I don't need the father. The other thinks I'm a slave to the father. Both are missing their true identity. They are sons of the father. They're children. See, there are two ways to run from relationship. The younger brother, the older brother, but there's only one way back to relationship. You know what it is? Grace. Jump back into the story. Verse 18, the younger brother is there practicing his speech. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he enacts his plan. He gets up and went to his father. Check this. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him filled with compassion for him, runs to meet him, kisses him, throws his arms around him. And the son launches into his speech. Verse 21, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your servant. Then he gets cut off. He never even finishes his apology sermon. As a preacher, I'm a little bit frustrated by this because he probably worked hard on this thing. But the father's having none of it. Like he gets halfway through, right? His whole sermon was, he didn't get into the, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one. The father interrupts him and says, stop, quick, it's done. The younger son's wayward response to getting back into relationship with the father, the father is having none of it. See, the father's answer isn't religion. Effort and work on behalf of the human participant in the story. The father's answer is restored relationship. And it's this beautiful exchange. Look at verse 22. The father says to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and he's alive. He was lost and he is now found. The best robe Scholars and commentarians tell us that the best robe would have been the father's robe. And the ring would have been the father's ring. In the ancient world, it would have been symbolic. In order to do any sort of business contract or deal, you would have sealed it with your signet ring. Your signet ring has your name on it. It represents your authority, your identity, all that you are. The best sandals in kind, commentators say, would have most likely been the father's sandals. The father sees the son in his mess, in his filth, and he says, give him my robe, give him my ring, and give him my sandals. My boy is home. This morning, without knowing what I was going to be preaching on, multiple times in pre-service prayer, some of our intercessory team kept saying this word exchange. I feel like God wants to give an exchange. He wants to exchange uh, bad things for good things, beauty for ashes. There's, all, there's this motif of exchange all throughout the scriptures. Here's what I have in my notes. What Father is offering to the Son is an exchange. Muddy and torn garments for the Father's royal robe. 
He's exchanging a shameful identity for the father's ring and his name. He's exchanging worn down, broken shoes for the father's sandals. What is Jesus doing here? He's showing us what God is like. He acknowledges our brokenness. He acknowledges our failures with mercy. But then he moves beyond with extravagant and amazing grace. He said, what does this story have to do about Easter? This is the resurrection story. This is what we celebrate. What we are reminded about in the resurrection is that even in our failures, even when we've run from relationship, whether the path of the younger brother unrighteousness or the older brother self-righteousness and dutiful religion, when we come to the end of our ropes, if we are simply able to respond in humility, the cross shows that even at the worst moments, God can use even those things and transform them for our good. Yeah. And the reminder, friends, is that we cannot make ourselves fit for the father's house. The younger son tried. He came back and began his good speech thinking he could earn himself back into the father's good graces and the father cut him off because it's never going to work. It was his compassionate love. We can't make ourselves fit. We can't work it off. We cannot earn it. It must be received by grace. And in this room, in Guyana, online, I'm not sure where you're at in the story, but you're probably finding yourself in one of these two characters, ways we run from relationship with God and others. Some of us run from God as younger brothers in unrighteousness. Yeah, yeah, God, I know you said all that stuff, but I'm a modern person, and this is an ancient book. I got this. Some of us push away God in our religious pride and self-effort like the only brother, older brother, but there is only one way back into Father's house, and that is through amazing grace, which must be humbly received. Here's the application. I'm praying that this morning, that whenever you're watching this later online, I'm praying that you and I, that we would decide to live by grace. Turn to your neighbor and say it's the best way. It's the best way. I'm praying that we would choose to live by grace. I'm not sure how you're wired. I'm not sure in which way you're tempted to run from relationship. Typically, older brothers tend not to give grace in their self-righteousness. Younger brothers tend not to receive grace in their shame of unrighteousness. But the only way any relationship works over the long haul, it's grace. I'm, I'm telling you, even if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and by the way, we're thrilled that you're here investigating God, faith, and spirituality online in the room. Even if you're not yet sure about the relationship with Jesus thing, I'm telling you, this is a truth of the human experience and every single relationship that you have. If you have relationships in your life that you want to thrive, you've got to run them by grace. Because here's the alternative. You're only gonna work in one of two ways. You're either gonna operate your relationships by merit and works, or you're gonna operate your relationships by grace. Those are the two paths. If you choose to operate your relationship by merit and works, whether it's with God or with other people, as soon as human failings kick in, you only really have two choices. You either kill the relationship because it's no longer adding value to your life or you get bitter and the relationship dies internally and eventually dies externally. Because if you're looking for merit to sustain a relationship, there's always failure to find. But there's another way for sustained healthy relationships. It's the way of grace. 
Grace is the only way to die, according to scripture. There's none of us who does righteous, not even one. The cross is so potent because the cross is our only hope. The only way we enter into right standing relationship with God is by grace alone, through faith alone. But grace is not just the only way to die, it's the best way to live. This is why Jesus is rabbi and teacher, not just savior and Lord. I mean, think about this in, in, in your relationships, in your marriage relationships, in your roommate relationships, in your family relationships. All the time, talk to couples, and they're like, man, when we first got married, it was so easy, and now it's just so hard. I'm like, well, you, you know what changed? You met the real person now. <laughs> like, now you've just had enough time for their breath to stanketh in the morning. Now you've just had enough time to see their little idiosyncrasies that you thought were so cute when you were dating and then they keep having it over and over and over and over and over again. It drives you crazy. Now you've realized you married a human being. And so you have an opportunity to choose. Are you gonna let that relationship die based off of meritocracy or thrive by grace? Here's what grace means. Grace is a gift. Grace means you are gifting someone with an assessment that's not just where they are, but where you know they can hopefully end up. This is what it means. God is not confused when he looks at us. Like God, God like, he doesn't like forget who he's picking for the kickball team. And he's like, oh, I thought you were much better than you actually are. God's like, we're like, are you sure? He's like, I know what I'm getting. That's cool. I love you. Come on. Grace is gifting someone with an assessment, not just of who they are in the present moment with a fixed mindset, but who they can become especially if Jesus gets a hold of them. This means you can be candid and gracious. Merit-based relationships take failures and make them identities. Grace treats failures as acts and lets God's word full of hope and love define identity and future outcome. You say, John, this sounds amazing and impossible. Like, how, how, I, I love this church, so good, so inspiring. I, I didn't even know the songs, but some reason I'm crying, I don't quite understand, but, but this is great. But like, we live in the real world that is cruel and harsh and yeah, love the thought, wouldn't that be nice? And I get it because the reality is you're never gonna be able to express or extend something to others in the form of grace that you have not first received yourself. Said, so John, how in the world would I ever live this? In order to live a life of grace, you've got to experience it first. Our son Liam, who I mentioned, I, I love this boy. He is a trip and he is totally my son. And, and it's, it's awesome and terrifying. And the other day he was getting ready for bed and I'm putting him down for bed and we have our little bedtime routine, telling him a story. And he just got full of energy about something. And he's like, dad, and he wails himself and he almost smacks his head into this thing on the wall. It would have knocked off the wall, but it would have knocked off his head potentially. And he's just like, ah, and he's going crazy. And I'm like, son, stop. And he realized, he looks at the thing on the walls, like this little, and he looks at what he was doing and he realizes, I'm like, bud, I don't want to hurt yourself. And he kind of pauses and he looks at me. He says, dad, I'm a bad son. What in the, I, I never said that to him. Like, that's not like a thing we say in our family. It's not like a family tradition. Like, now you're a bad son. Now you're like, we don't do that. I'm like, bud, what are you talking? It was so antiquatedly framed too. I'm like, what are you reading? The King James Bible somewhere? Like, what in the world? I'm a bad son. I said, buddy, you, don't, you, you, did, a, you did a bad thing. You're not a bad son. So I go through this whole little mini sermon. And then he looks at me and he says, dad, do you still love me? 
And I'm like, where did he get that? Like, that's not something we talk about. That's not something we do. Like, we love our kids. Where did he make this conclusion? And I realized it's right here in the story. The son comes back and he is in touch with the wrong that he has done. And the logical human conclusion is this. I have done bad things. So until I do good things, I am no longer loved. Father, put me like one of your hired servants. And I looked at him in the face. I said, son, of course I love you. You know why I love you? And he gave a bunch of reasons. Because I'm funny. I was like, you do not lack for confidence, son. That is true. You are funny. Because I'm smart, because I'm handsome, I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Because I'm good, I said, no. I said, son, I love, you know why I love you? Because you're mine. I said, son, you're gonna do bad things in life and you're gonna do good things in life. And God will love you and forgive you in the midst of it and he'll have better plans for you and I want you to follow his path, but I need you to hear this loud and clear. I love you not because you're good, but because you're mine. And I'm not some super dad, this is... This is the story of the father. I, I've never, I've read this story, preached this story so many times. Every single time there's something new. I was stunned watching the way this all comes together and coalesces. The younger brother, he gets, he, he, he comes home. He's got his speech practice. He, he runs up and, and when this father sees him, it says he sees him from a long way off. This is the same word used for the long way or far away country. I've always imagined in my mind, like, you know, as he gets to the driveway, the father's like, whoa, I got to get there. But the reality is he's like, I mean, it's a hike. And it says the father goes running to him. Now in the ancient world, men, especially patriarchs, did not run. This was not a thing that was done. They wore these like skirt looking tunic things, right? And so they would have to hike up their little tunic. And they have, I mean, it looked all sorts of awkward. It was a shameful act for the father to run. So why'd he do it? Heard lots of commentaries. A lot of them are like, it, it was compassion. It was love. That's definitely part of the story. By the way, this is astounding. When the son finally gets there and the father reaches him it says the father starts loving on him kissing on him I mean he's just overwhelmed with compassion before the son ever repents to the father the father is already lavishing his love on that son he's already extended this is while we were still sinners Jesus died for us the, the beauty of the cross is not that a bunch of people who finally realize they need God say please can you do this for us there's no hope and he's like fine all you guys finally come to your senses I guess I'll throw you a bone here the story of the gospel is while we were still missing it Jesus died for us so the son the father he was just full of compassion that's part of the story but it's not the whole story you guys can come out whenever you're ready What's happening in this moment is something tethered to ancient world culture. I mentioned that if a son were to do something like this as a rebellious son who were to say, Father, give me my inheritance, Father, if he would do this act because the father had to very publicly divide his land and inheritance, most likely he would have to sold off land and livestock. It would have been a public transaction. The whole community would have known what had happened. He sold off his bios and inheritance for this younger brother. What we find out is in the ancient world, this was a crime punishable by not just jail time, it was punishable by death. In fact, it was mandated in the Torah that if the community knew of an act this egregious, if or when the community, the men, the elders of the tribe were to find a son, they were to stone him and put him to death for his acts. And in that context, 
the father sees the son from a far way off. And he realizes it is not just guilt or shame that lies in the balance. It is quite literally a death sentence. And if anyone else gets to the son before the father, his life could be over. And so the father, endure, he hikes up his tunic and he runs to his son, enduring the shame and covers him with his own body and hugs and embraces, saying to the rest of the community, if you want to kill my son for the guilt he deserves, you're going to have to kill me too. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And for so many of us, man, we get so saturated in meritocracy. We get so saturated in religion. We get so saturated in this thought of, I need to be good. I have to show God that I mean it. I have to show God that I care, sometimes even with great intentions, that we miss relationship with the Father because we're going about it the wrong way. And he loves us. Look at this story. The son is full of pig pen muck. He is literally ceremonially and religiously unclean. Make you think of a story of Jesus. And when he comes to the father, if it were me in the story, I would have been like, hey, you smell horrible, pig pen son. Let's get you cleaned up and then let's welcome you back to your mom, right? It says, while in the midst of his story, while he's still in his muck and his mess, the father takes his robe and puts it on him. Who puts a robe on a wretch? The father. It says he embraces him and, and kisses him. It's this Greek word. He could not stop kissing him. If you ever had, if you have a kid and you're just like, sometimes I do this to Liam. I just love this boy. He's like, dad, why are you doing that? I'm like, I don't know. I didn't even realize it. Like the father just can't help himself. He's kissing him in his mess. He's putting a robe on him in his mess. He's putting sandals on his feet in his mess. What's the point? The point is that you don't need to be good. You just need to come home. And there's a father in heaven that loves you so much. And we miss it so often. I miss it so often. And if you've been medicating the shame and the pain of your past in religion and it never seems to cut it, it's because it never will. You don't, need more relate, you don't need more religion. You don't need more meritocracy. You don't need more good works. What you need is to humbly receive amazing grace and let it change your life. Because God wants to be in relationship with you. Because he loves you. This is the Easter message. Jesus fulfilled the, the law, the requirement that our sins deserved. He fulfilled and took it upon himself. He covered us like the Father with his own flesh, by his own body, with his grace. And he took in his body the penalty on the cross that our sin and rebellion deserved. In the, in the cross, by his death, Jesus took off our filthy robe and made us clean. And in his resurrection, he gave us his robe of righteousness, his ring, his new nature. What's this? story about my son was dead and now he's alive it's resurrection in his death he took away the bad and in his resurrection he gifted us with the new what we could never earn what we could never deserve but what he freely gives to whosoever asks it's amazing grace but you have to be willing to receive it it's grace through faith. Friend, hear me. It does not matter what you've done in Guyana. It does not matter what you've done online. It does not matter. It does not matter what you have done. If you're here and you're ready, 
You're like, man, I wish this sounds like my life. I wish there was just like a reset button. There is, it's called amazing grace. Will there still be earth consequences? Sometimes. Will there be heavenly forgiveness for all of eternity? Definitely. And if you sense in your heart this feeling, man, this just feels too good to be true. Like my analogy with a police officer, I know it sounds too good to be true. This one actually is true. And if the father is drawing you, it's because he loves you so deeply and it's time to come home. You're welcome back in Father's house. People tell me all the time, like, man, I came to Greenhouse. I just felt so, like, loved and welcomed. Like, it didn't feel like the Walmart obligatory, like, happy you're here. Like, it seemed like people actually cared. I'm like, because they do. Why? Because they've received it from him. So we give it to others. You don't have to live in the emotional roller coaster of religion. You could Build your life on the firm foundation of his never-changing, amazing grace. That's why Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Past, present, future sins covered and atoned for by the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And if you're a younger brother that's been off in the distant land of unrighteousness like I was and many of us have been in this room, or if you're an older brother who's been away in the fields of self-righteousness and religion, the call is the same. Father loves you, not because you're good, but because you're his, and it's time to come home. Why don't you join me as we pray? You can bow your head and close your eyes. I just wanna give us a moment of, of reflection and response. Often in our fast-paced modern world, we rarely have time to pause and consider the, the health of our souls. If you're here this morning and something is happening to you emotionally, spiritually, on the inside, that something is God and his love is drawing you and his grace is every bit as amazing as I'm describing, in fact, much more, better than I could ever articulate. If you're here and you feel weighed down with life, if you're here and you feel like you just can't do it anymore, if you're here and you feel like, man, I've been trying and trying, I wanna be a better person, I wanna do better, I, I know I should and you just can't, it's because you can't. You need amazing grace. The beautiful thing about this story is while the sun practices his speech to earn himself back into the father's graces while the son is still practicing in his mind the father is running to meet him all you need to do is take a step and the father is running to meet you if you're here this morning in the room online over in Guyana maybe you've been an older brother in self-righteousness, maybe you've been a younger brother in unrighteousness, but you've been running from a relationship with God and others. I wanna invite you this morning to come home by amazing grace, receive through faith. If that's you in the room and you say, John, I, I know it, I hear it, I wanna respond. I wanna start following Jesus. I wanna receive his love, mercy, and forgiveness. I, I know I can't earn it, but I wanna receive it. I just want you to shoot your hand up in the air right now, here, online, Guyana, in the room, there's nothing magical about a hand raise. It's just something that communicates awesome, awesome. I love it, I love it. Right there where you're at, you can begin to, to pray to God. Kyle, right now you can take it over there in Guyana. Right there in your seat, you can say, Jesus, I hear you. I need you. I'm coming home. I'm done doing this on my own. 
I receive your amazing grace.